Mm-hmm. How you doing, Emily? What? How you doing? <laughs> oh, how am I doing? I'm good. I I was I basically yeah, slept all day. Yeah, like I I had a big thing. We should do the episode. And you'll I'll tell yes, you all about the story later. Yeah. All right. Good evening and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we hold horror to progressive standards it never agreed to. Tonight, we're starting a month of talking about one of our podcast's favorite directors, the inimitable Guillermo del Toro, and we're kicking it off with his feature debut, Kronos. I am your host, Jeremy Whitley, and with me tonight, I have a panel of cinephiles and cenobites. First, they're here to challenge the sexy werewolf, sexy vampire binary, my co-host, Ben Kahn. Ben, how are you tonight? Jeremy, do you realize that this entire movie, like the central core premise of the film, is a motherfucking JoJo reference? Is it really, had, though? Had any of y'all, to guess not yet introduced, had any of y'all ever encountered a story about a Mesoamerican artifact with sharp, stingy prong legs that sticks into people and then turns them into a vampire? Because I had in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. I mean, it was in, it was sort of Ben's Devil Man. They got the mask into like Brazil or something. I, I will also say the main character's name is so completely unsubtle that he may as well right. be oh, a JoJo. That's big Iraqi style. <laughs> Do you know that cast. Jesus Christ was also a, a Joe star? Who's the first That's Joe true. star? That's true. That's canon. true. That's fucking canon. Oh, man. And I did I did the math. It would be hard, but if anyone would have had access to JoJo's Bizarre Adventure in Mexico in nineteen in the mid nineties, from what I understand, it Absolutely. would have been Del Toro. Yeah, that nerd. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Before we do a full hour on this, let me give through these introductions uh, the cinnamon roll of Cenobites. Our co-host Emily Martin. How are you tonight, Emily? I'm good. I really love the part of this movie where he went, it's Kronos time. It started Kronosing all over those guys. That was great. We'll, we'll make sure that we talk really about that good. part. Make sure we don't skip yeah. over it later. And our guest, first comic writer and host of the podcast, Domance Don, Luke Hare. Luke, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. Good to have you. We look forward to talking about this uh, vampire grandpa with you. <laughs> and yeah. our returning guest, podcaster, co-author, and artist of Danger and Other Unknown Risks, Erica Anderson. Erica, good to see you Hello. again. Yeah, I told you I wanted to do Kronos, and you already had Luke, and I was like, I still want to do Kronos. <laughs> I was like, yeah. we oh, do yeah. have somebody for that, but we can't get you on there. And you were like, oh no, absolutely Kronos. <laughs> no, never having seen Kronos before, I absolutely get it. Fucking <laughs> hell yeah for Kronos. I have so many things I need to talk about. It's my favorite one. I think like all of his Spanish movies are my favorite of his movies, but I think this is my favorite of his Spanish movies. Hmm. Yeah, it is somehow the Spanish movie with the least Spanish. Also, I mean, the intro exposition dump in English definitely threw me off at the beginning of the movie. Oh, yeah, I have HBO and I was going to watch this on HBO and then I'm like, English? No, and then I go over on the rented it on Amazon Prime. It's the same. I just gave them <laughs> gave Bezos for bucks. I feel robbed of the joy of seeing Ron Perlman speak Spanish. 
in every Ron Perlman movie. He should speak Spanish in every movie. I have some good news for you. He also speaks French. So I have the uh, criterion of this movie. And Mm -hmm. one of the interviews, basically, Del Toro wanted to make his first movie. was like, I got to get Ron Perlman. I love Ron Perlman. And Perlman and he like instantly hit it off. And he loved the script. And he was like, apparently he practiced for a long time, like getting a Spanish accent, uh, a Mexican Spanish accent correct. And he really worked on it. And he like gave a whole monologue to Del Toro when they met up again. And like, apparently Del Toro sat there, nodded his head. and was like, mm-hmm. and at the end, he was like, that's terrible. You're, you, you're speaking in English in this movie. <laughs> and that's I, why fantastic. he's director material. <laughs> I mean, it was such a joy seeing his name pop up in the credits and realizing that these guys have been ride or die for each other since day one. But also the fact that Ron Perlman got this job partly because of City of Lost Children, but also partly because of fucking Ice Pirates. Ice Pirates. (laughs) Oh, shit. I didn't even remember that. I was was like way distracted by uh, Angelica Houston. The thing with Ron Perlman in this movie is he's fantastic. He steals the movie. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. He's so good. I I know Emily didn't end up watching it on HBO, but I don't know if you watched through the, like, few-minute clip they have of Guillermo del Toro introducing it at the beginning Mm -hmm. where he's like, yeah, this is a movie I wanted to make. And the Mexican government was like, fuck no, we're not funding this movie. And then I made it, and they were like, this is terrible. It's never going to win anything or go to any film festivals. And he was like, and I saved those messages. And then I took it to Cannes, and we won the audience award at Cannes. And so I sent that. I sent messages back to those guys. I was like, fuck, yeah. Get him, Guillermo. Amazing. That is the energy we should all aspire to. Oh, that's so good. But yeah, like, good on him. The thing, the decisions he made, like, some of his laughter, when he does the fake pretend football to tackle the car off the cliff. (laughs) <laughs> or him yes, just yelling very three point stance to knock the car off the cliff it's okay. amazing let me do the the quick recap here and then we talk through all of our favorite points because it, it is a movie with a lot so of many works yes it sure is i need to talk about every fucking detail of the office when we get to it like this factory office <laughs> it is written and directed by guillermo del toro uh, it stars as we said ron per- perlman federico lupi who i haven't seen in a bunch of stuff but he's got a bazillion credit. Uh, he is sadly deceased, but he lived a, a good long acting life. It's also got Claudio Brook and uh, Margarita Isabel, both of whom have a, a long list of, of credits in Mexico. All right. So the, what actually happens in this movie? Let's start with some lore. We get a lore dump at the beginning. A long time ago, an alchemist made a device supposed to keep you from getting old called the Kronos device. Nobody knew he had lived so long until he was until a part of the building collapsed and he died because a shard of something pierced his heart. The device was never found. Now we pick up with a grandfather, Jesus, and his granddaughter, Aurora, going through their daily lives, running an antique shop, and having frigid interactions with their grandmother's slash wife, Mercedes. Yes, this is somebody's first film because everybody's name is very on the nose. So shady guys are coming to his antique shop looking at statues of angels, and he is very suspicious. I guess nobody comes into his antique shop. We learn that the shady guys are buyers reporting to Ron Perlman's angel, a, a gruff, tough guy who runs a factory for his uncle who is disabled and lives in a clean room hidden under the factory. 
Also, his uncle is more than a little evil. So roaches start crawling out of the broken eye of one of these angels, which is the scariest thing that will happen in this movie. And Grandpa Jesus knows that there is a hollow in the base of the angel and opens it up to find a strange golden mechanical device. He takes it out and keeps it. Angel shows up to buy the statue, and Grandpa doesn't mention that he took a device out of the bottom of the angel that this guy is obviously looking for when he buys it. Grandpa decides to play with the device and finds out how to start it winding up. It does a whole lot of Hellraiser stuff and then sinks its stinging claws into him and makes him bleed all over the place. Uh, he goes and interrupts his wife's teaching dance class so that she can bandage up his hand, uh, where she finds a metal stinger that he is left in, that was left inside by the thing. He still doesn't tell her what happened. That night, he's insatiably thirsty, and his hand is itchy, and he wants to eat raw meat, but he doesn't. Uh, so eventually, he decides the solution to this is to get the device, wind it up again, and let it finish its whole cycle, at which point a stinging tail comes out of it and sinks into him. Aurora sees this because she is up reading with her rave glow sticks, and despite Grandpa saying it's okay, she obviously knows this shit's fucked up. The next morning in the mirror, he discovers that he looks younger and decides to shave his mustache. But his shop isn't looking quite as good. His shop has been broken into in the middle of the night, and they've wrecked everything, but put the broken lock back on the door, presumably just to be assholes and rub it in on their way out. Well, unless they're hard. Yeah, yeah, they left the card, and they put the lock back on the door broken. So Grandpa decides the way to go about this is to go see them, and he goes and sees his evil uncle, who knows all about the Kronos device, and is pretty sure that it works because there's a bug in there, um, and the device is a processing system for this bug juice. Uh, bugs apparently can live as long as they want, as long as you lock them in something. That's <laughs> science. That's definite science. Evil uncle chastises Jesus for using the device and demands he hand it over. It seems as if he does, but the box that he hands the uncle actually just has the broken locks from his shop inside, which is a smooth burn for this dude. Oh, yeah. Aurora knows what's up and tries to hide the device from Jesus, but he talks her into handing it over and continues to use it. Uh, the family decides to go to a cool New Year's party together where Jesus and Mercedes are all flirty and kind of uncomfortable at the table. This is until Jesus sees a man bleeding profusely and decides he's got to get some of that blood. He is busy licking blood off the bathroom floor, which again, this actually might be the scariest thing in the movie. It's gonna say. When Angel walks in and kicks him unconscious. Things aren't so much scary as just deeply unhygienic. It's pretty scary these days. He's passionately licking this bathroom floor. He is very slowly and carefully making love to this tile. If I were going to lick off a bathroom floor, it looks very clean. I mean, that's white. That's like yeah. marble. You have worse yeah, it's options. Yeah, a nice bathroom. They go all out for the New Year party. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they really cleaned this bathroom up before the New Year's party. I um, am more worried about the guy that was like brushing the blood off the sink and then didn't wash his hands. He was fishing blood off with his hands. This guy was Somebody cleaning blood off with blood. his hands. Yeah. Yeah. I, and then got racist about it. A person who he did not see. Yes. Oh, my God. That's right. There was just that casual racism thrown in there. Yeah. yeah. Neither of these are the weirdest guys we'll meet in this movie because we're coming up on that. Jesus awakes having been driven out to the middle of nowhere by an hell when he refuses to give him the device. Anil beats him accidentally to death, then quickly sticks him back in the car and pushes the car off the cliff, which he does by putting himself in a three-point stance and charging it as if he were blocking the car in a game of American football. Jesus goes off the cliff and, you know, crashes in the car after falling off this cliff. He's real dead now. This is where we meet 
uh, the real star of the show, Tito the yes. Mortician. He's a very special character who takes great care in his art. He sews Jesus' mouth shut and makes him a replacement forehead that is fine art, but is eventually distracted just before burning the body, which is enough for Jesus to jump out of the coffin and run out into the completely uninhabited night in Mexico. Apparently there is nobody on the streets anywhere here. What's it's the 90s and like New Line Cinema was a thing. So we got cans full of junk and plastic sheeting and a lot of wind. So, yeah. yeah. We're, it's, it's not as steamy in Mexico as it is in the uninhabited streets of, of American cities in the 90s. There's there's drier fewer than skateboarders, too. Um, yeah. So he tries to call <laughs> he tries to call Mercedes, who is not having this. And once he utters her. Her name, raspily, she just hangs up the phone. Which Alicia was like, yeah, I would do that too. <laughs> I just buried you. Yeah, I mean, it, it's fully understandable that like <laughs> you hear some weird voice that sounds kind of like your recently dead husband. You're just like, no. <laughs> yeah. No. Too much. Aurora also hears it because she's listening on the phone. And as usual, Aurora knows what's up. She welcomes him back and hides him in the attic where we find out that he's now allergic to sunlight. Likes blood, allergic to sunlight. I know what you are. Say it out loud. Vampire. We're starting to get some like things falling together here. He decides Can he's going to settle business and goes to see the evil uncle. Of course, Aurora sneaks out and follows him, ruining his apparent plan to go down in a blaze of glory. The uncle is mad at him for not embracing his new vampire lifestyle and drinking blood. Starts ripping chunks of rotting flesh off of him, revealing his new white gooey flesh underneath. He Jesus then gets taken down by the evil uncle, who must be much more powerful than he looks, because he also beats the living shit out of Ron Perlman earlier in this movie. Those canes aren't really nothing to mess with. Yeah, he's got two steel canes. And also, like, Ron Perlman, it's not like he's fighting the uncle. Yeah. He's just taking a beating yeah. in the hopes that one day he'll get to own a factory. There, and there a new seems nose. to be a real lifetime of abuse going on. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You know, like, one of those, like, elephant post situations where, like, the abuse started when he was too small to fight back, and now he can't mentally handle being able to fight back. Also, I think the parts of him that they removed and put in those jars were just the parts of him that had just had, like, compassion and softness and now it's just like mean wiry old man muscle left <laughs> just all, all the ass kicking parts of him are still there yeah so um the only person capable of taking him down is aurora who clocks him across the head and knocks him unconscious despite weighing about 25 pounds i mean i We're think this just proves fucking... that these like canes are fucking impressive theories aurora manages to be what like one of the wildest characters in this movie without saying a word yeah she says grandfather. She, she gets bonuses it. on bludgeoning damage. That's for sure. Yeah. At this point, Jesus has a, a chance to make a clean getaway as the uncle is unconscious. But he sees the evil uncle's blood on the ground and just can't resist leaving Aurora in danger so that he can lap up some more blood off the ground. At this point, Angel arrives in time to find his uncle dead. No, wait, he's not dead. He's still alive. Okay, Angel fixed that. Now he's dead. Poor dead uncle. But he still needs to kill Jesus and Aurora. I guess he chases them to I, the rooftop. My my theory about this scene is that Angel would have let them go had they not hit him in his new nose. Yes, 
it's possible. I'm yeah. I I have thoughts about that. That that's we're gonna need to okay. circle right. back right. to that mm-hmm. after. Yeah, that I would like to because... talk about his nose. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's uh, I. Mm, so recap. He, he yeah, takes yeah. them to the rooftop where they have a standoff that Batman would be proud of. Aurora continues yeah. to just stay in danger. Angel's really starting to beat Jesus's ass, so Jesus decides that he's gonna take a diver. He's gonna take a header off the thing. Spears on him off the rooftop like he's Ricky Starks. They both fall to their death, but Aurora comes and puts the Kronos device on Asus because she's looked out to revive her grandpa at this point. When Asus revives, he sees that Aurora is bleeding and barely stops himself from feeding on it. And that's just too much for him. So he decides he's going to smash the Kronos device so that he can finally die. And I guess the miracle bug too also needs to die. So... He uh, he decides to go die in his bed, surrounded by his loving wife and granddaughter. I don't know how long it takes them to explain all of this to the wife before she's okay with him dying but, there, but that's the end. She seems to be I, into I, I would have loved to have seen Mercedes have to put up with, like, good news, your husband's alive again. Bad news, he's also dying. Yeah, like, Mercedes seems like a person who'd be like, I, uh, how long is this going to take? Some detective in this town is like... I really want to get to the bottom of this. Like, there's a whole other story that, of the unseen detective that's trying to, like, investigate all of this shit. And they're like, okay, so he was cremated on Wednesday, and then he killed this guy, and then he killed that guy, and then he, then died, he died again. But he was also cremated by the sun. That sounds fake. But, you know. It's an X-Files thing. Play that. It's a real case closed. Case weird. Case closed. Jeremy, question for you. You think you interpreted it as Aurora was incidentally bleeding and Jesus had to stop himself. I interpreted it as Aurora was so down for vampire grandpa and she knows the rules that she was actively offering her blood to him. I was a little unsure. I feel like I feel like she definitely does offer her blood to him. I feel like it's unclear whether she cuts herself or she is incidentally cut. But that or might be me missing does something. not fuck around. No, she I does nine movies out of a hundred. Little girl in shop, cockroaches start crawling out of like out of the statue. That little girl is screaming, so the main protagonist can be like, "Ah, what the fuck? This movie? Cockroaches start coming out of the statue." Aurora grabs the hammer, fucking starts smashing. Just more whack a mole with that. She is decisive. again bludgeoning old dudes. Saving Grandpa, just immediately being like, oh, immortality device? Yep, that goes right on, Grandpa. We're doing, uh, like, she's down for vampire, Grandpa. Aurora is so fucking hardcore. When she makes him the bed out of her, like, the coffin out of her toy box and puts him to bed with her doll and her teddy bear. Incredible. Littlest Renfield. Yeah. Aurora could have been uh, just, like, a plot device of innocence. And instead, she just gets to be like this weirdly hardcore little girl who is just like silently down for any level of violence or supernatural fuckery. Yeah, and she is quiet. Well, yeah, I think I think she's less about innocence and more about like love. Yeah, where you know you're willing to do something about it if you really love someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Del Toro is said that like the relationship between the granddaughter and the grandfather is based on his actual relationship with his grandmother and how like 
you'll do anything for these people you love, even when you like have all this evidence that they're evil or bad. And I was like, oh, Guillermo, that's that sounds yeah, bad. What, what, you... what kind of shit did Guillermo del Toro's grandma get up to? I mean, I totally understand the like, oh, yeah, as a child, you will learn about crimes and when not to talk. Yeah. And also with the story about throwing all of the cigarettes in the toilet. <laughs> when he introduced that story with, I've experienced this before. I'm like, you found another immortality granting scheme? Uh, that's why he was smart enough to pick it up with the uh, cloth the first time. But since it didn't immediately activate, he was like, oh, I can touch this. But then, you know, it just lulled him. So it's not his fault, really. That thing lulled him into a sense of security. And it became in. a D.O. So, uh, it, it, honestly. So, Erica, you had immediately said uh, this was the one you wanted to watch. You were down for this. What is it that you love so much about Kronos? I think compared to the rest of his filmography, it's kind of the most like purely distilled story. Like there's no messing around anywhere in the story, right? Like everything, even the really weird stuff, like our bizarre mortician is sort of in. Oh my like, God, the mortician. To, like, I know, but it's, it's like, it's there in service of like the weirdness of the story and what it's doing. It's also, he loves certain themes. And I love looking at this and being like, oh, okay. Here we have child who's down with the supernatural. We've got the crazy bug that I mean, in Mimic, it's literally called the Judas breed. Like, we're not getting that far <laughs> off. We got vampires. We got, you know, like, oh, man is the real monster, which is like one of his favorites. Yeah, he are the real monster. I, I love it as a like bringing off point from like all of his other stuff. Like you can see it's all in there, <laughs> all of it, even though it's such a bar story. All the cool old shit. Too, like the antiques and everything and like the weird inside old relics. of the Kronos device when he shoots the inside and it's got the gears going like that's cute. that's gorgeous Super it's cool. really interesting watching it especially for the first time watching it and knowing you know that it's del toro's first and everything that would come after it because like it is such a down and dirty indie horror film the kind we've seen so much of and yet maybe it's because you know I know to look for it, but I really think you can tell like, oh, damn, there is like there is the seeds of real style and vision going on that like are going to fucking blossom later on in this guy's career. But like the seeds are there from the start. Yeah, no, it's, it's all there. I mean, I saw this movie really early on. Like, I think it was it might have been like pre Blade 2 when I first saw oh, yeah. it. So like I'd probably seen Mimic at that point, but like that's about it. And so, like, yeah, I still think it was really impressive and different, even without knowing, like, everything about this guy at that point. But it's also amazing looking back on his career and being like, oh, okay, you knew what you wanted to do. It's all here. You just got to, like, expand on individual themes later. Yeah. I, I agree <laughs> about the conciseness of it. You know, like, I feel like a lot of his later movies, like, once he got to do more things, especially with, like, Blade and Mimic, he was getting into spectacle a little bit. But this movie is very quiet and also, you know, it's very well organized for, like, a gritty indie horror movie. Yeah. Luke, what was your, what's your impression of this film? Like, what do you, what draws you to this one? So this was the second time that I had seen it all the way through, but I had this, like, weird, vague memory of seeing bits of this movie uh like some cable channel growing up and then like post-college it was like all right well i want to see some more Guillermo del Toro films and i rented it and it was just kind of that 
oh, this is what I just have weird memories of. And so that was Mm -hmm. kind of what drew me back. But it is one of those films where you kind of appreciate the detritus. Like it is a very real world in a way where I appreciate that. And just like some of the use of colors and imagery and especially for how much of a budget it has, it's wonderful to look at. One of the things about it that works is sort of the fact that they didn't really have any kind of budget Mm -hmm. because like it feels like the real world because in a lot of cases it is like there was a a thing in that that same interview where he was talking about like those last couple of shots they had to shoot at some of the stuff at a different angle because they were actively tearing down the building that they were shooting the factory stuff in as they were shooting. So like that, like in some of those shots, the factory isn't there. So we had to shoot it in a different direction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I think this is probably, you know, person who has seen one independent Mexican film saying this other independent Mexican film has first independent Mexican film vibes. But I, I feel like you could definitely see a little of that kind of like film by the seat of your pants that you saw in Robert Rodriguez's first El Mariachi movie. Like, or just like when we see Ron Perlman walking through the factory and like, he's really just walking through some wild sparks that are shooting out and he's getting hit by sparks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think part of it too is like with him and Rodriguez, even though they were doing these like super early movies, like both of them had been like doing other stuff for a bit. They just didn't get to do you know, a full movie yet. They got really good cinematographers. So like mm-hmm. they got mm-hmm. like Guillermo Navarro has worked with Del Toro his entire career, starting with Kronos and then for everything else because he's just amazing. You know, it's, that's just a guy who knows how to like make a room look good. And mm-hmm. I think there's plenty of independent films where they have rooms that are just as real and they look like shit. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. That is so accurate. There's kind of a BBC Jim Henson quality to this movie, to me. It reminds me of, there's a movie that's about Alice in Wonderland, and I cannot remember the name of it right now. Otherwise, I'd be... Um, Jabberwocky? No, this is something about, the title's something about a girl. I'll look it up and talk about it later. But um, it's got these huge puppets of the creatures from the book. And it has the same kind of vibe where everything's very dark. And, you know, it has that sort of soft lighting that a lot of these have. And also Monster Maker, which is another weird Jim Henson one. Yeah. And the music, too, also has that vibe. So it's kind of feels wholesome in a big way for me. I mean, I think it kind of is. It's about a little girl, like, protecting her grandpa. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. I think there's a lot to be said for the Jim Henson influence on Guillermo del Toro generally, but like specifically in this movie. (laughs) Just that level of artistry and craft, but also let's make it all monsters. Yeah. And also Um, have, have some heart to it. It's not just like spooky, scary monsters like doing horrible things. And yeah, we have some like uncomfortable close ups of horror stuff, like people pulling glass out of themselves. But the characters have heart. We're not getting super problematic. Also, this movie, when it comes to the people pulling things out of like themselves, like glass, this movie probably wasn't meant to be watched on modern HD televisions where you can really see just how rubbery some of that yeah. uh, skin is. Which is Again, charming, I don't honestly. Begr- like, not a negative. Like, I never begrudge these indie horror movies for, you know, getting by on what they have. Like, I'll criticize a fucking $150 million movie, but fucking teenage del toro just pulling out every trick he's got i'm like fucking more power to you 
Wait, he was uh, no, he wasn't. No, a no, I'm, I'm, yeah. exagger- I'm exaggerating. Okay. No, he's not a. He wasn't a teenager. I was like, mm-hmm. I, he was like running a makeup studio at that point, Pop, movie makeup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I will say the opening. I think it's like beautiful in that way that like Pan's Labyrinth is, where it's like it's very fairy tale, mm-hmm. where you're like you're looking at the dead vampire and then panning through his like insane, crazy old vampire man apartment. Up to the like upside down body dripping blood. It is like a gothic fairy tale. It's so amazing yeah. as a setup. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, Erica, I know you very quickly specified that it was a movie makeup studio, but for a brief glorious moment, I was imagining Guillermo del Toro managing a Sephora. I, I feel like <laughs> I saw that in your eyes and was like, I need to, <laughs> I need to let That's you know sad. that he wasn't just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I actually didn't know that about Guillermo del Toro, which makes the show Los Spookies a lot more interesting. Well, I mean, it's already a great show, but I'm like, oh, it's like Guillermo del Toro, except <laughs> I'm pretty sure he wasn't actually sending people into other dimensions. I mean, it's Although one I don't, thing that I don't know. It's like, oh, wow, the love and appreciation and knowledge of practical effects and costuming and creature effects. Like, well, like, like it literally hands on. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. and like, in the pre-documentary thing that they did, they talked about how the first thing that he did was he got to go on and have the, uh, like, crane shoot for the camera. Like, how excited he was for that. And it's like, you kind of feel that love going into that initial shot as it pans yeah. up. And, and he got the crane I, up the stairs and he was like, all right, let's do it. So there's really, I don't know how much political analysis there has to be found here, but I really want to talk about Ron Perlman's bedroom in this movie. Or oh my god, bed yeah. locker pod doing his little yoga boost where all the walls are mountains. He's living in like a worse version of like Bruce Willis's Fifth Element apartment. Honestly, it's, like, it's a little so, bit more charming. Like, I, I'm not sure how long I would be able to live in that in there before I also kind of wanted to kill the relative who was keeping me there. Mm-hmm. I do think there's some things to be said in this movie. There's a few subjects that are handled a little bit. I mean, there's the, the abuse between Ron Perlman and his uncle. And I don't think that's really handled in a super, like, in-depth, meaningful way. I mean, yes, he is suffering from cancer, I assume, because he's, like, getting all of his organs taken out and put in jars, which, like, Holy shit, I do that. But if you can, I will. Just, yeah, just keep all your seven grass. I think if you're rich enough, they let you yeah, keep yeah. them. Otherwise, you're not supposed to keep it. Yeah, that's some real, like, crazy rich people shit. It wouldn't keep my gallstones. It wouldn't let me keep my gallbladder. I mean, or you have to know a guy. Just that's a quick true. aside. Yeah. There is a amazing documentary called Finders Keepers about guy who goes to an auction of a, like, uh, storage unit, buys a smoker, opens it up, and finds a mummified human leg. Fuck. Uh, I believe and, that was here and, in North Carolina. Uh, oh, yeah, shit. I think it was. That? And basically, that is a, a leg that, spoilers for the movie, the guy who lost it, he had a friend at the hospital let him keep his own leg after it was amputated. That oh. feels like the opening scene of a season of Fargo. Or <laughs> Hannibal. I mean, but, if it's yeah, like, on the East Coast. Proof? Oh, and so in terms of things not handled delicately, like it's not actively hateful. I like I certainly I'm not accusing Guillermo del Toro of any ill intentions or bigotry. I don't think it's great that an actor as visibly Jewish as Ron Perlman's main character motivation is wants a nose job. 
and all the focus on the character's nose. I, I, yeah. I didn't, as a Jewish person, I, I, I'm not saying it was anything major, but I didn't love it. Especially because Ron Perlman's nose is not the feature of his face that you're looking at. You know, it, like it wasn't his nose that got him cast in Beauty and the Beast back in the nineties. Yeah, yeah, they, he has a little baby nose, and which is really easy to turn into like a cat face, Malmers. But like, yeah, that was the other thing is that it just seems really random to me, and it's not huge. It doesn't break the movie. Ron Perlman, I don't know. He might have been totally into the bit. He might have even suggested the bit for all I know. But mm-hmm. without that context. It's not huge or movie-breaking, but it did make me go like, this makes me feel a little bad. Yeah. I don't, don't love this. Yeah. I super thought it was random, but also, like, the, the one that they chose for him, the nose that they chose that he was asking them for was, like, straight, and it was, like, long, but anyway. I kind of read it as, like, him and his uncle sort of having this similar thread of trying to control their lives and different ways where he's like very physically like he's built himself up and it's him trying to control every element well his uncle's kind of in this almost essentially egyptian tomb because he does have his organs preserved in jars like the canopic jars and like there's all the statues of the angels that have been bought before kind of giving it that strange feel deep within this winding labyrinth and uh yeah that was kind of my thought I, I get that. I feel you. Yeah, I think part of it, too, is like, yeah, yeah uh, there's the part where Perlman really only has his like, like he only has his outside self to present to people. Because like whenever he's outside, he's like holding himself up really high. He's well dressed. And then like we get the reveal of him in his like horrible little like locker lipses. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think part of that's more meant to be like, like you said, control of the body because that's the only thing you control. Yeah, yeah like, I, seriously, those lockers the mountain background it feels like something adam scott would wake up in a severance and be in that room <laughs> and he, he's very like playful with the thing which i i think makes it made it not stand out as much to me as, as being a thing like in that scene where he's showing them the different things he's very like lighthearted and excited about it rather than it being like ah my curse but like yeah they also like play it where his, his nose gets broken multiple times in the movie to where like maybe this is why he's a knows because he's had it busted so many times that you know he just wants to get it reconstructed that's where i was going with the uh, abuse line there but i think the bigger the bigger point this movie makes is about addiction which is a common theme with like movies about vampire stuff yeah jesus gives that whole speech about like hey i hear you i see you no more immortality scarab now go that way. Grandpa needs a hit of immortality well, scare. Well, what I love about that speech is that he actually doesn't say he's going to stop doing it. He was like, <laughs> yeah, well, when my, when my son put my cigarettes in the toilet, it didn't actually help anything. But I heard him and I would hope that you would hear me. I hear you. OK, well, I almost wish well I'm glad we had this right conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I get that you're concerned about my addiction. Fuck off, little kid. <laughs> well, I mean, at least he he did make the point of like just taking it away isn't going to fix it. You know, mm-hmm. this is it. Just just depriving me of it is isn't going to fix it. Okay, but but I this understand isn't what cigarettes. you're trying to say. He can't go down to the bodega and get another immortality scarab. This is one yes. instance where taking it away might fix it. But I I felt like the way he told that story 
was really cool and how he, you know, made it applicable to a real life thing and something Aurora might need to deal with in the future as well. Mm-hmm. Because it's a, it's, it's a very you know, human, it's similar. touching, relatable bond. Like their bond and their relationship is very real. Like you can see like, oh, this guy is legitimately like a good grandpa when he's not heartwarmingly weasel wording his way out of continuing his addiction to magical artifacts. <laughs> well, he tries at least to be discreet after he has that moment on the stairs where he's talking to someone. And since it's Christmas, you know, I thought he was talking to Jesus, but he was talking to myself. So he was. <laughs> talking to Jesus, also a JoJo reference. Yes, definitely. Like JoJo's Bizarre Adventure came out before this. So I think we can all agree that he was. Yes, the, yes. Phantom Blood started in 86. So. You know, yeah. you wouldn't have, he wouldn't have gotten to the part where Jesus tells the main character to kill the president so he can walk again. But, you know, I, I think that was always implied from the beginning. That's where the series was naturally leading. I have yes. to keep reading after what they've turned into the into the anime because, well, oh. <laughs> yeah, Steel Ball Run gets wild. Part seven. I just have been explaining to me what happens because I only have so much time in the day that I can use my eyeballs for things that aren't work. <laughs> So, and so much as I would love to enjoy the JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, but there is an element. I feel like there's a very, very valid comparison to be made between the kind of super elaborate, weird nonsense that you get out of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure and a lot of manga, you know, which I know that Guillermo del Toro was into. Like, I know that he's a huge weeb and I know that he understands me at a personal level. But the other thing I was curious about with the influence is that I think the city's lost children was not out yet at that point oh oh and maybe i got it mixed up maybe city of lost children job came from chronos okay i, I know that he got one job off the other i i, I think i was got it mixed up yeah because i think gotcha. uh delicatessen came out before that so that means this was solely ice pirates that movie has some charm sure has Bruce Valange playing a robot. That's not to sell me on anything, really. Look, it's got Angelica was Houston. He, was he the pimp robot? No, he he's like some sort of rich guy whose head gets cut off and put onto a robot. So much happens that's in not, that movie. Don't think too much about Ice Pirates. I disagree. <laughs> Unfortunately, this it's is the most I've ever about. thought about Ice Pirates in my entire life. Oh, you gotta see that movie. Yeah, I mean, okay, really, at yeah, this so, point, it would have been Ice Pirates, maybe Quest for Fire, and I don't know, maybe Beauty and the Beast, but that's like, like he would have already been, I don't know, casting at the point that Beauty and the Beast was coming out. Well, I guess Beauty and the Beast started in 87, so it might have been part of it. This movie also feels a little bit like that show. Like, there's a bit of a, that, like... Um, Sunday afternoon on CW kind I'm, of feel. I'm like, looking well, at urban Ron, fantasy. Well, it would have been UPN at that point, but you know. I'm looking at Ron Perlman's Wikipedia, and you know an actor's had a good career when their filmography has to have a separate Wikipedia article. Yes. Yes. Correct. He's a man with quite a few entries in his filmography, that is for sure. So, yeah, it was Quest for Fire, Ice Pirates, Name of the Rose. And Sleepwalkers, oh, yeah. none of those movies are anything. Ice Pirates it's, is something. I mean, Ice Pirates like, is a lot. It's, yeah. And, but it's not weird to me that Del Toro would be super into, like, these weird little movies. That's you know? true. Yeah. yeah. It also makes sense why Del Toro was also like, I can probably get this guy. Yeah. So many movies and actors where a role like Angel would have been so forgettable. 
and yet Ron Perlman, whenever he's on screen, like you can't look away. Like there really is that it factor, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. that he's got. I think partly what works for it as well is like the fact that he's bad at Spanish. And so he's speaking in English and it feels disrespectful because the character knows Spanish. Like he can hear it and he can speak it. But like 75% of the time, he doesn't want to. Yeah. It's it, a power the, move that adds to the character that's also just necessitated by Ron Perlman's language skills. Yep. yep. <laughs> I love it. A real we can't show this fucking shark situation. Is anyone getting <laughs> young Harrison Ford vibes? From Ron Perlman in this movie? Because I was. I mean, maybe two Harrison Ford stacked on their shoulders. Like, yes, I'm saying, like, it's evolved Harrison. When he's in the shop, like, he's got that very effortless, gruff mm-hmm. charm that Harrison Ford has. I agree with that. But I, when he's higher energy, that is more energy than I've ever seen Harrison Ford. Harrison yes. Ford didn't have that much energy in any of the times he was in actual plane crashes. <laughs> <laughs> You think that's why? I mean, that's why he survived. He just goes limp. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and he has one of those bugs that, like, fixes his blood. So that's why he survives. Yeah, but I feel like Jesus got more energy, though. Like, Harrison Ford just turns more and more into, like, a golem. But he's just getting Jesus. rockier and stiffer. <laughs> well, at first, just shaves his mustache and then goes fishing for compliments. And bless him for exactly. it. Mm-hmm. Listen for it. I mean, I thought he looks better I, I with the mustache. Enjoy, I do enjoy the portion of the movie that's how Jesus got his groove back. Yes. I feel like there's a very, very subtle subtext that Mercedes is like, she's teaching this dude, this like very mousy looking guy, Tango. And then when Jesus shows up, he's like, oh shit. Like, you know, maybe Jesus was jealous that she was like doing Tango with these other dudes or something. And then when he got his groove back, he's like, now we're going to tango at the party with the clock mime and just kiss each other on the numbers a lot. Yeah, I do like that difference between them in the beginning where she's like, she's teaching dance classes and moving around and he sort of fits in a room full of old dead things all day. And then we cut later to the scene where he's in the bathroom with this thing that's keeping him alive and making him younger. And she's like, I wore this dress last year. How did I change this much in a year? How did my body like go so downhill in one year? I love that moment in the shift. Yeah. I I did like that they didn't make Jesus feel like he was really frail, though, because we like see him playing hopscotch in his store, which power move. He starts off with a real Geppetto energy. Like, it's just like, you know, kindly old grandpa. It is. Mm-hmm. I did not understand at first that Mercedes was his wife. So I'm just like, damn, dude, why are you just showing up for this random dance teacher's house with like a bloody <laughs> hand? Like your sweater vest first before you just show up at people's houses. <laughs> You're getting blood on her floors. Yeah, I was so distracted by the mustache earlier that and how Geppetto heals. I didn't even pay attention to the wife. And then I was like, oh, yeah, that's the wife, isn't it? Doing the tango. But it's interesting but- because... They don't outline it right away. They don't say who she is. And they do make it clear that Aurora is his granddaughter. So that you're like, well, is that his daughter? Is is, yeah. is mm-hmm. his you know daughter-in-law? Oh, you know, I guess both the parents are dead. Both of Aurora's parents died somewhere, somehow. I don't think we ever get clarification on that. Presumably um, in a supernatural 
monster nightmare Ghibli adventure that left her mute except for the word grandpa. I think she's just a girl of few words, you know? I, she's Aurora's the strong and silent type. Absolutely. Or, you know, uh, speak softly and speak softly, carry a big cane. She's like snake eyes. You get yeah. one word. I Except do... for in that terrible movie. Oh, my it's... God. I finally oh, saw that. It was we're disappointed. We're all rooting for you, Henry Golding. I still haven't seen Leave. it, but I don't know why you don't. would ever cast Henry Golding as somebody who has to wear a mask all the time. He and doesn't. I love Andrew Koji and Warrior, and I was so excited for him to be, like, the main villain in this. And now I guess I just have to wait for wa- next season of Warrior and hope it doesn't get canceled before it comes out. It's kind of the Stallone Judge Dredd movie of G.I. Joe. Yeah. So mm. I don't I don't have a segue to this, but I really want to talk about this blue collar coroner. Yes. Tito. Tito. I love, MVP I love Tito. that his name is Tito because everybody mm-hmm. else is Angel, Jesus, Aurora, Mercedes, which, you know, again, it means mercy. It's like they're all very biblical names. And then the fifth apostle, Tito. My theory is that Tito is just like, he's like one of the guys he works with doing monster makeup. Because I feel like that's what thing he's doing. Like, he's just an artist working with a client. And then is like bad when the client changes the games. Like, yeah. that's, but he's just a personal, like, artist. I think this whole scene is improv. Like, I, I have no it's evidence amazing. of that. But it's, it's in a very different tone than the rest of the movie. And, and, and cremation so good. joke is fantastic. Like, he's everything. Uh, I he's mean, got makeup and cremation, fire dancing. He's wearing just like gum a on his... greasy tank top like he's a mechanic for dead bodies. He has Wolverine sideburns, pictures of luchadors on his wall, a banana he just pulls out of his pocket for like his cremation snack. Like I, Tito is everything. He's the better it's, Gallagher. Yes. He shows up oh, at the wake. Absolutely. Had, Tito is holding and eating an entire tray of rolls at the wake. Nobody else has hors d'oeuvres, but Tito has a whole fucking snack tray to himself. He absolutely also, is ready. Are there normally hors d'oeuvres at a wake? Because I feel like there should be. I think Depending. it depends. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I think they probably I want hors d'oeuvres at my wake or whatever. Oh wait, no. We said shiva. We do shit tons of food. No, we're good. My people. Oh yeah, to, you, you're. My, you're gonna. My have people food know how to eat our grief. Yeah, yeah. That's that's like that's like Irish wakes. It's just you know, it's a potluck. Yeah, I think Mexico's not too dissimilar. And with with China, we like every year you go to the cemetery. You like you pour a little bit out onto the grave, and that's like, all right, ancestors, we brought this food for you. We're just gonna eat it for you. If you're okay with that, yeah. I'm just gonna. This is for you. I'm gonna. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, Tito, again, like, the care and craft. And yet, you're right. It does feel like an improv comedy duo. Like, blue collar Tito and the other guys all suited up and proper. Like, and he's like so excited about watching Tito do his work and he's so impressed with him. And then he's like, you know, we are going to cremate this guy, right? Just, just so you know. He was like, Fuck. that was so funny. Like, in an old school, like, almost silent movie way, kind of funny. Yeah, he felt like he was being really patronizing, too, because of Tito, he's like, this is the best work you've ever done on this guy's forehead. And Tito just barely put that putty on there. Like, he he wasn't even started. And I'm like, obviously, this priest does not understand art, but he wants Tito to like him. Yeah, yeah but 
There, there's your the queer content, folks. We found it. Oh, there. <laughs> we, we found the queer ship in Kronos. Beautiful. And the muscle guys. The um, Uncle LaGuardia's like, weird muscle guy lamp. That was something. Tito what apparently was in another of? movie. Now I'm looking it up. I'm looking it up right now. Yes. Yeah. If you go to the Wikipedia page, there's apparently another independent film made where Tito reprises his role as the funerary. Oh, you mean Tito the character? Yes. But played by the same actor. Oh my God. Yes. They it's part of the Tito connected universe. The Guillermo verse or the, the Tito verse. God, I need Tito to appear in Hellboy now. Right. I want Tito. Well, it's funny because that also happened in um, Jay and Silent Bob appearing in, Scr- in Scream 3. Yes. And this is one of these things that I love about these some of these like genre films. There is a quality when a film has characters that are all memorable. And there's movies that are like dumb as fuck, but every character is memorable. Tito is like a, a microcosmic version of that, as well as the uh, the mortician in the prophecy. Although I prefer Tito, the mortician in prophecy had a little bit more of a psycho killer vibe. But now I have to look up the Tito verse. What, uh, fam? Are we looking up the Tito verse right now? I mean, Luke, you you pointed out what's the movie. I'm sure you have the information. Oh. And I hope Tito shows up in Shape of Water. Okay, so the movie is We Are What We Are, which yep. is a horror movie from 2010. And both Juan Carlos Colombo, who that plays re- the oh, that director, recently. and mm-hmm. Daniel Jimenez Placido appear as the same characters as they were in Kronos. Okay, it's been a while since I've seen We Are What We Are, but that is another eating people movies. Yep. We're, we're just all about eating people as a culture these days. Well, that was 2010. It was a little ways back. Mm-hmm. That's true. Not quite iZombie, the TV show era, and Hannibal era, but clips. Yep. Okay, it's been so long since I've seen this movie. Like, I didn't realize Wyatt Russell was in it. What? I really <laughs> I really hope that these guys live long enough that if, like, I don't know. I just hope that they're in more movies. Like, these characters need to be in more movies. I then... need them to meet up with Tony Todd in a, like, other Final Destination kind of situation. They need all the weird yeah. morticians. Yes. And the, yeah. the mortician from Tales from the Hood. Hey, what was with the backwards suit that Jesus was wearing? Why was his suit backwards? It's not a real suit. It's just like vests that you get that are sometimes for, you know, something where you're going to be wearing a jacket the whole time. There's no back on it. Since he's not getting up while he's lying in the uh, in the coffin, they can wrap it around him instead of having to, like, sit the dead guy up and squeeze it over his head and everything. Yeah, yeah, they can also mm-hmm. just take it off for later so they can use it again. Did you have to take awkward senior photos where, like, everyone had to wear the same things? So they put, like, one of those on all the guys as they came in in their T-shirts? No. Yeah. We we did that with, with robes. Uh, yes, yeah. and it was a dead dude's vest. We each had to share the same dead dude vest. I mean, it could have been. Yeah, who knows? Oh, man. I, all I thought when Aurora came in to save her grandpa was just like, Aurora with the steel chair. Bless her, her heart. I, I do want to ask, considering I've been mean, talking about Aurora specifically, do we think Kronos is feminist? I think it's not not feminist. I'm going to solidly yeah. weigh in on not, not feminist. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not anti-feminist. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, it, I think it just is. It just yeah. isn't like, there's not enough. It's not harmful. Yeah. Because like, I think it's just a loving relationship within a family. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, mean, I do have whatever. the little girl as the action hero in this story. She's the yeah, only one that gets shit think... done. 
Mm-hmm. I don't think it's really trying to explore themes of any particular gender or feminism. I think, like you said, it's just the loving family relationship. Uh, and she's not and a, addiction. you know, full quotes, hate beaten voice, strong female character. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or even just like, I do appreciate that she's not just like an, um, like an impossibly innocent, too good for this, you know, wicked earth. Like character, like, you know, even with no line, she still is a character with agency and real personality and who Mm -hmm. gets to do some of like my favorite things in this movie. I feel like if you're going to have a criticism, Mercedes kind of feels like she could have been set up to be like the cheating spouse, but they never really developed it fully in that direction. And it's more of just they've had a relationship for a long time. Things are complicated. Yeah, yeah, I feel like if anything, he just wants to be on her level because she's teaching dance and she's like super sensual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. I like that we never sort of fully get into the relationship because it's not important, but that like mm-hmm. there's something going on and it's not like the perfect relationship, but they clearly care for each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, I do appreciate any kid who that quickly can go, oh, team vampire grandpa, let's do this. <laughs> yeah. Be a little vampire sidekick gonna take my teddy bear and glow stick and get you victims grandpa let's do this no follow-up questions yeah <laughs> like, she's just to be a little like you know like renfield hit girl type well i feel like this happens a lot in del toro movies and a lot of the like and also in the ghibli movies that we mentioned there is this this perspective that is usually pretty refreshing even though you know i feel like it's pretty common these days that kids aren't like meek or dumb or any you know the kids are super super observant and also they don't question the reality of something the same way that a an adult might right where like if someone you know if mercedes discovered vampire uh, vampire jesus you know she may have had a lot of questions but aurora she just said, knew that grandpa was alive and he needed the bug and he couldn't be in sunlight and she loved him no matter what his skin was falling off and she loved him and i think that especially with the kind of acceptance that occurs with that and like also with devil's backbone and pan's labyrinth which we'll be talking about which i somehow have never seen and i'm so excited what? to finally see. really i don't yeah. I, I don't know how i've never seen it you're in for a treat. Yeah. Have you never seen either of them or just Pan's Labyrinth? What's the Devil's Backbone? The other one? No, I've not seen that one either. No. That's they... genuinely spooky. It's a genuinely spooky and also tear jerking movie. Good. Yeah. We'll find out next week. Yes. Find out next week on Guillermo del Toro's filmography. Well, I guess we've answered most of our questions here. I guess that leads us to asking, uh, would would we all recommend this yeah. as something that's worth seeing for people? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think in terms of trying to find themes or a deeper message beyond just, you know, the story of family and loving family and self-sacrifice for family, I would say is probably the story of addiction. And, you know, a sympathetic look at addiction. So, yeah, I would say that's if you're looking for a deeper angle to view this movie on, I think that's probably the one to view it through. Yeah. And I I think that along with there is this certain element of like family versus class in here, because, you know, you have this this family that is I mean, they're they're middle class. They run or own an antique shop and do dance lessons. But like. They all love each other and they they care for each other and they're able to, you know, prevail and take care of each other through all this. Whereas, you know, you have this 
richer family of this of on Helen is his uncle who hate each other despite having mm-hmm. all this stuff they are terrible to each other and it doesn't work out so well for them in the end yeah but yeah I, I fully recommend it's definitely worth checking out I think it's still like despite being quite a bit 100%. older still like feels like a pretty fresh take on vampire adjacent stuff they never say the they never say the V word in this movie, yeah. but you don't really figure out it's a vampire story until you're maybe about half an hour from the end. And it's like, oh, it's <laughs> he likes he needs blood to keep going. Oh, got it. You know what this is closest to to me, like sort of feel wise, is ravenous, where the vampirism or I, I don't know cannibalism, what egoism, whatever you want to call it, is sort of emphasizing the idea of power and needing to like take that from people in a way that I feel like a lot of other vampire movies are more like, ah, it's a monster. I do yeah. I feel like among vampire protagonists, Jesus is unique in that it's not often someone becomes a vampire literally just by pure fucking accident. But like, he kind of got a splinter and that turned mm-hmm. him into yeah. a vampire. Yeah, right. Well, that's how you get tetanized. Like, there uh-huh. was no seduction. There was no falling into temptation or fear or corruption. There was just like, ow, a pointy thing. Uh, I, I need blood and I'm immortal now. Also, yeah, I think and- very interesting in the, the sort of like taking the older person and giving them the opportunity to be younger in this story. Whereas often we see vampires, a lot of like young looking people who turn out to be very old. And, you know, this is sort of giving him a, a renewed lease on life, which is what's exciting yeah. and addictive about it to him as compared to like, oh, you can live forever. Like he very clearly doesn't want to live forever. I think he says as much towards the mm-hmm. end. He's like, look at this shit that I'm dealing with right now. Who wants yeah. to live like this? Well, I think that falls into the addiction story too, where like he feels great in the first part. And then as he starts to realize what he has to do, eat people, he's like physically worse and he's just like oh no but now i need it and want it it's mm-hmm. not like i want it in a way that you know i can't control one of yeah. my favorite moments in the film and again just one of the great like little acting performances that makes him so damn good in this movie is the way ron perlman just laughs when he's told that his uncle's plan is to live longer yeah yes like that fucker was like yeah all he does is yeah. piss and shit all day and he wants to live longer. Yes, that was the line. Yeah. Like he's a, uh, yeah. just a killer performance. And yeah, so I guess I'm recommending uh, anything with Ron Perlman. So I guess the Teen Titans cartoon. He's a mm-hmm. good Slade. Slade. Wow. His name is really fun to say dramatically. Yeah, I, I guess you have to see Ice Pirates though. Yeah, there you yes, go. I fucking have to see Ice Pirates. I've never um, seen it. I, so. I don't recommend it. I don't actually recommend it. Like, it, it's mm. one of those movies that's, like, interesting in, and as, like, an 80s artifact, but you're mm-hmm. also, it, you'll feel your brain melting out of your ears. It's definitely watched watch Rock- with people Dracula. movie. Yeah. I've watched Dracula. Watched... Yeah, okay. I've okay. watched Dracula in the theater. Oh, wow. Wow. We, we had a very fun time on a Rockula episode. Yeah, we talked. I'm so that, happy. That, that movie was a delight for all. Yeah. So, Ben, I think you like Ice Pirates. I'm not blanket recommending Ice Pirates, but I'm. But you, I, you know what I'm about. Yeah, I know what you're about. I think you, you would be <laughs> yeah. at least intrigued by all of the stuff that goes on in Ice Pirates. Um, yeah. That, any it, movie a, that makes me go, 
Oh, okay. Choices were made. Choices like, always have a good post. time. Yeah. Oh, okay. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, 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 I need to watch Ice Pirates. I. It's one of those things where, like, it's not something I'd recommend to everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if that's yeah. the sort of thing you like, then you need to see it. Yeah. Let me tell you, though, it is a weird movie to just randomly come across and be like, well, this looks interesting. It looks so innocent. Yeah. So you said you wouldn't generally recommend Ice Pirates. Emily, what would you recommend to people after watching this movie? I mean, I recommended the Cabinet of Curiosity series that is produced by Del Toro. There's a story in there. When the last episode is actually written by Del Toro, and it is also very heartfelt. But I was actually going to be, my recommendation was going to be City of Lost Children, which is an, a French film. Very weird. Jean-Pierre So, and since we've already mentioned it, I'll also recommend Delicatessen. Speaking of having a smoking, having a leg in the smoker. Yeah. Delicatessen is, uh, is another Jean-Pierre Chonet. And it's really, I really recommend these movies. A, because Ron Perlman, you know, watch out. There's some problematic stuff in there because, you know, they're weird and French. But the, then you look at the same guy directed Alien Resurrection and Amelie. So what a guy. With um, an eccentric Frenchman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But very, very similar to Del Toro in terms of themes and imagery and interests and things like that. So Resurrection, I would say that you need to have a Frenchman if in the middle of an airy alien film, you're going to have some poetry just read out by a uh, a dying Brad Doris. Yes, it, you yes. are a beautiful butterfly. You had me at Brad Doris. God, when uh, his sister's peeling his skin off, that clip played in my head, always in my head, as Brad Dourif being like, mm-hmm. people are a beautiful butterfly. <laughs> so, Ben, beyond the Teen Titans cartoon, did you have anything else uh, you wanted yes. to recommend? Yes, if you want another early movie from a director who is now considered a modern master and also features the relationship between a child and his kind of grandpa, but it's also just a very, very good movie. I'm going to recommend Hunt for the Wilder People. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Again, I think that's yeah. my favorite of his movies. It's so good. Uh, yes, directed by Taika Waititi and starring Julian Dennison and the incomparable Sam Neill. Incomparable is definitely a word I can apply to Sam Neill. <laughs> Erica, did you have anything you wanted to recommend to go with this? I mean, I guess I'll go back and re-recommend Ravenous, which, you know, has themes of eating people as a form of power and comparing that to Manifest Destiny, which rules. Yes. Uh, not Manifest Destiny, the idea of, yes. you know, <laughs> cannibalism, that that power dynamic the as brave compared stance. to Manifest Destiny. Erica, yes. pro-Manifest Destiny. That's me. And I guess I'm just going to name things that we've already named. Like, we are what we are. Absolutely. Rules. Even without my memory of Tito, that and movie yeah, is another eating people movie that is, again, like, about a family, but is quiet and unsettling and maybe less nice of a family. And uh, Gotta complete the Finders Keepers, that documentary about finding a leg in a smoker. A real thing that happened to a guy or a couple of guys, I guess. There's also the guy. That Incredible. Nice. Uh, Luke, did you have anything you wanted to recommend? Uh, yeah. So Columbus used to regularly, COVID interrupted it, uh, have a 24-hour sci-fi marathon, which is where I initially got to see City of Lost Children and Delicatessen one year. And a 24-hour horror marathon that would happen. And 
thinking about this, uh, I got reminded of a 2017 film that we had the Ohio premiere of called Replace. And it's very similarly this film about a person who's having something happen to their body. They aren't sure how it happened and kind of what they go to as a result. And it was a wild film to see after about 12 hours of watching other horror movies. And but Barbara it's like, Crampton's in it. Yeah. And it's one of those films where right. you go in knowing nothing about it and you're going to be horrified because there's a lot of body horror in there, like far more than this. But uh, it will stick with you. It will get you to recommend it to people like five years later. Oh, it's on Tubi. Yeah, the, uh, mm-hmm. course, the course poster here suggests a lot about what is handled. In the yes. Film. The one thing that for some reason was coming to mind for me where we're talking about sort of the Jim Henson vibes of this. I, I was reminded of something I haven't, I don't think I've recommended on here before, which is the film Mirror Mask, which is sort oh, of a Neil yeah. Gaiman based, just sort of post Jim Henson in Jim Henson Studios, directed by Dave McKean. It's, it's so Dave McKean. Like it's basically yeah. just his art. It's yeah. really good though. I really love that movie. It's beautiful and weird and wild and has sort of that that feel that you get from Dave McKean and Neil Gaiman stuff. And yeah, is, is is really good. And again, has a sort of, you know, this movie only sort of has a young female protagonist, but Mira Mask definitely has a young female protagonist who's, you know, at the center of it. And it's a really interesting, at least sort of horror adjacent, but like weird fantasy for the most part is this sort of the vibe, the Neil Gaiman vibe, if you will. Well, it's like if Neil Gaiman did Labyrinth. I was about to say the exact same thing. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think it happened. That's what it is for me. Is it? I did remember the name of that movie. It's Dream Child. That is the, it's about the woman that was like the inspiration for Alice in Wonderland and her being like interviewed for this special anniversary of the book release or something like that. And then there's a weird subtext that um, Lewis Carroll was like inappropriate with her. Um, That's a theory that. Mm -hmm. that's the real theory yeah it's a very british subtext so it's really folded in there she has these hallucinations of the creatures from the book and they look terrifying it is awesome and they're all jim henson puppets this is dream child not to be confused with the 1989 nightmare on elm street 5 the dream child which nobody should watch no yeah no this is this is something very different it's the worst nightmare on elm street don't do it to yourself yeah but do watch. Is there? I feel like they get progressively worse. Is that the? Is that? Isn't there one more after it? Nightmare. Is, is Dream Warriors is, is good, good, but Freddy's Revenge is not as good as Dream Warriors. Well, there's this yeah, Dream Warriors, it? Dream Master, and then yeah, they five is is probably is almost certainly the worst. We do get come back around to Freddy's Dead, which is not good, but is not like just utter bullshit the way Dream Child is. Oh no! Oh no! Wait, yeah, you're right. Dream Child is the Yes, it's the Dream one, Child that, is the one his... that I couldn't find at the video rental place because people just hated it that much. I had to like <laughs> go searching for it and immediately regretted it once I watched it. Amazing. Yeah. The, the um, good Dream Child has Ian Holm and Peter Gallagher in it. So there's that. Sure. Amazing. Great. Uh, well, that's going to do it for talking about the movie. I do want to give you guys a chance to let people know where they can find uh, more of your stuff. Erica, I know you have a uh, a book coming out soon. Do you want to let people know where they can Find out more about that and what else you're working on? Yeah, well, so um, I co-wrote with Ryan North, and I drew it, a book called 
danger and other unknown risks. It's out at the beginning of April through Penguin. Uh, you can pre-order it from, I think you can get it from comic shops now. I think it's, we're close enough that pre-orders are available in most places. I do a podcast with a previous guests, Benito Sereno and Matt Wilson called Till the End, where we talk about the TV show Chucky. We're between seasons right now. So I think when this episode comes out, the last episode we'll have done is Puppet Master, but the next one will be Megan. We're continuing with Dolls. Oh, oh nice. Uh, I need exciting. to see that movie. It comes out on Peacock in two days. Oh, well, hell I guess yes. It, it will have been out on Peacock for many days by the time you hear this. <laughs> yes. Well, I know what I'm doing um, this weekend. And I have a book coming out this October with Alex DeCampi, but you won't be thinking about that for a while because it's currently February. That's parasocial. Well, no, no listen. Pre-orders? We're not available? there yet. We're on, I'm okay. not even done drawing yet. All right. And uh, Luke, what about you? Where can people find out more about what uh, what you've got going on? Typically, I am my lot in various places as Coltrek, K-U-L-T-R-E-G. So Twitter, your other social medias. The main podcast I'm promoting right now is Domance Dawn, D-O-H-M-A-N-C-E-D-A-W-N which is a Simpsons One Piece podcast where we recap One Piece and then fan cast uh, Simpsons characters into those roles and then have wonderful co cover art by uh, great artists. Uh, it's a very fun, chill podcast. And then you can find a bunch of my other stuff at LukeHair.com, L-U-K-E-H-E-R-R.com, or you can find a bunch of my comics, including Super Slasher, which is a superhero rom-com slasher ad by Gumroad, which is once again, K-O-L-T-R-E-G.Gumroad.com. Fantastic. Awesome. I am sharing this, I'm sharing your, your website right now with my friends because Domance Dawn is right up there, Allie. I am more than happy to get more people onto it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, as for the rest of us, uh, you can find Emily at Megamoth on Twitter and at Mega underscore Moth on Instagram and at Megamoth.net. Ben is on their Twitter at BenTheCon and on their website at BenConComics.com where you can pick up all their books. And you can pre-order El Campbell Wins Their Weekend, their debut middle grades novel from Scholastic. And finally, for me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jrome 58 and on my website, JeremyWhitley.com, where you can check out everything I write and pre-order my upcoming graphic novel, The Dog Knight, coming from Macmillan in May, along with our, our good friend and, and previous guest, Bree Indigo. That's exciting. And, of course, the podcast is on Patreon at Progressively Horrified, our website at progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm, and on Twitter at ProgHorrorPod, where we would love to hear from you. Speaking of loving to hear from you, we would love it if you would rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening to it. It helps us find new listeners when you give us lots of stars. Thanks again to Erica and Luke for joining us. Guys, this was fun. The movie was a ball. Thanks so much for coming on. I had a hoop. Thank you so much. Great. Yes, thank you so much. This was such a blast to talk about. Absolutely. And uh, thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks to Emily and Ben for being here. And until next time, stay horrified. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye.